to celebrate an unprecedented birth. It's been an unprecedented year. How many times have we heard that, right? You know, when I think about that word, I'm reminded of something that happened to me the other day. I was going to our local office supply vendor because I had to return cartridges. It's the only thing you can't do online. You can order new printer cartridges, you can collect, uh, collect stuff at home, but you cannot send back empty cartridges to the office supply store. You have to take them in physically. So I went to the store, went inside, and the attendant that helped me was very helpful, and she said to me, she said, would you like a receipt? And I said, well, I don't need it, but she had already printed it off, so she handed it to me. And she said, oh, and there's a coupon. And so I took the coupon from her, and as I was walking out the door, I was looking at the coupon, and it said $10 off of a future purchase of $20 or more. But what was unique about this coupon was that it said for in-store purchases only. How many times have we received those coupons in the months and the years prior to this year? How many times did we receive those coupons where it said for online purchases only? You know it's been an unprecedented year when they're trying to get you to come back to the store rather than doing all your shopping online. Well, I decided to take a look at that word, unprecedented, looked it up, and found some definitions for it. Here are some of the synonyms for this word. It's been a bizarre year, an extraordinary year, a remarkable year. It's been a singular year, nothing like it. Uncommon, unparalleled, unheard of, unrivaled. Sounds like Santa's reindeer. It's been an unusual year, an aberrant year, abnormal, and anomalous, to name just a few. Well, this Christmas story has some very important characters in it that we have not always focused on or taken a look at. But I think this year in particular, it's important for us to take a look at some of these characters of the story. The story actually begins in Luke chapter 1, right after the introduction of verses 1 through 4, Luke, where Luke introduces us to the gospel. He then sets off with the announcement about John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, how they've not been able to have a baby, and now Elizabeth is pregnant, is going to have a baby. This is how that part of the story goes. It begins in verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abiah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. And so what we have here is an introduction that reminds us of who was in charge. Herod, king of Judea, was an unprecedented king. 
Herod was born around the year 72 B.C. His family came from the Idumean region, which is an Arab region. And we know that his grandfather converted to Judaism. And so Herod was an Arab Jew. Uh, he grew up uh, worshiping God as a Jew, uh, along with his family. And Herod's father was a high-ranking official um, who had gained support from, uh, he was a high-ranking official for the region of uh, Idumea. He had uh, gained the support of the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, and had been given control over Idumea. After his father's death, King Herod took over, and he began to control that region. But then he also um, entertained some battles and won some neighboring tribes and regions. And before long, he had developed power over all of Judea. So he was known as the, uh, the, the king for that particular region. Um, the Romans were so impressed by him that they took a vote at the Roman Senate and declared that he would be now known as the king of the Jews. And so he ruled over all of Judea. Um, in 36 BC, after he had kind of consolidated his power, conquered all of his neighboring enemies, um, and had become the sole ruler of Judea, um, he was recognized after this point in time for his ability to build amazing structures and things. One of the things that he built was he renovated and expanded and created a magnificent new temple in Jerusalem. But he didn't do this to honor God. He did this to honor himself so that as people around the world would come to Jerusalem, they would be so amazed at the beautiful city and the magnificent temple that they would recognize that this was King Herod's work. He also built um, uh, fortresses. These fortresses were built on, on, on top mountains uh, where you had to actually hike and scale up a mile or two to get to the top. And these fortresses were, were well known and are still well known. You can take tours of them, Herodium, and also the fortress at Matsada. As a matter of fact, Matsada is still used to this day by the Israeli army. They induct all their new soldiers into the army on top of Matsada. It has quite a uh, famous history, and so um, that's part of the reason why they have chosen to do that. Herod also built the tomb of the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. All of these patriarchs are buried in Hebron, and uh, he is one, the one that built this magnificent tomb for, the, for these uh, remains. He also built a new city, Caesarea Maritime, um, in Israel. And he was also um, quite a prominent leader in uh, doing some unprecedented acts as the king of the Jews. For instance, he introduced a golden eagle right in the center of the entryway to the temple, the Jewish temple. The Romans saw this as an immensely patriotic act by King Herod. The Jews saw it as a sacrilege and a slap in the face. 
They couldn't believe that king of the Jews, King Herod, would put a Roman symbol inside their temple. He also was known for his authoritarian power and uh, for his fear of those who were close to him. For instance, it was rumored he felt he had evidence that his wife had an affair and uh, that he was fearful that she was going to try to take his life, so he had his wife murdered. Uh, he didn't stop there. He was concerned about the two sons that he had had with his wife, so several years later, as they were getting older, he had them killed so that they didn't become a threat to his power. He also had an older son from a previous marriage, and later on, maybe five, ten years after the first two sons were killed, he killed his third son. He had five children. The other two were girls. Thankfully, the girls survived. So King Herod is known as an unprecedented leader. No one had ruled so powerfully, so ruthlessly as he had in many, many years. We also know about his story from the scriptures. We know that in Matthew's gospel, that after the wise men, the magi, came to visit the Christ child, Herod had lied to them and said, please tell me where you find him because I want to go and worship him too, when in actuality, Herod wanted to kill him, this Christ child. They were warned in a dream by an angel the night before they went back to Herod and were told to go home a different way. And so Herod never received the Magi again, and he didn't know where the Christ child was. And so what the scriptures tell us is that he ordered that every boy under the age of two in and around the village of Bethlehem be murdered. And so we know of this as the innocent, as the slaughter of the innocents. Herod the Great, king of the Jews, no one had seen a Jewish king with so much power and authority, such ruthlessness. It was unprecedented. But this Christmas story doesn't stop there. It tells us about another unprecedented leader, Emperor Caesar Augustus. His, his authority extended throughout the world. In chapter 2, verse 1, that's what it tells us. At the time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire, which covered most of the world as they knew it in that day. So Caesar Octavian is his name. Caesar Augustus had consolidated power and had formed the first Roman Empire where he was the emperor, an autocratic ruler over that. Prior to this, the Greeks had had a republic, um, quasi-republic form of government, and uh, now they had, um, they had an emperor uh, who was almost godlike. And so in this story, this unprecedented leader is the creator of the Pax Romana, which is known as the Peace of Rome. He created this peace by forging um, new territories through power and threat and um, acquiring them and, and assimilating them into the Roman Empire. 
He built and maintained a vast system of roads and aqueducts carrying water, and he regulated a continuous taxation plan. First one to do this uh, from every province in the Roman Empire. And so uh, not only did they have uh, a regular uh, stream of revenue, uh, but he also introduced a monetary system. And um, with this new monetary system, the denarius, he made sure that every coin had an imprint of him upon it. Now, this unprecedented emperor was also known um, because of his um, uh, because of his power, the way that he used his power uh, to try to force his way uh, with um, other countries. He was um, feared around the world, and he was feared by those who he had given power to. The third character in this story of unprecedented leaders is a man named Quirinius. And he was the governor of Syria, which included the region of Judea and Bethlehem. Now, what's interesting about Quirinius was that he was a Roman aristocrat who curried favor with the emperor by becoming the tutor to the emperor's grandsons. He made the inroads and was rewarded for those um, in, were in uh, for making those inroads and. Um, Eventually, uh, Caesar Augustus made Quirinius governor of Syria, which included the region of Judea, the, the place of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It says in that first verse that Caesar enacted a new census so that all of these new lands that he had conquered could be incorporated into the taxation system. As a matter of fact, this is the first time that the Jews have been taxed by the Romans. And there is, I would think, some unease about this. Quirinius was the one who was ordered by Caesar to take the census so that the Judean region could be uh, numerically uh, identified and taxed. What was interesting is that the Jews didn't believe in census-taking. And so, um, right away, Quirinius was up against a challenge of making sure that all these Jews were going to be taken uh, account of through the census. Quirinius, um, you would say, helped uh, Rome by growing the empire uh, through, well, what we call it today, mergers and acquisitions. Um, I have a brother who's an attorney, and I remember years ago, he used to tell me, he said, Steve, uh, I think he worked with an M&A, they call it an M&A department, mergers and acquisitions, and he said the, the secret to M&A is that there's no such thing as a merger, there are only acquisitions. And so that is exactly what was happening here, is that uh, between Quirinius and Caesar Augustus, they were acquiring more and more um, territory and more and more power. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, the Jews hated their captors for this census taking. It was forbidden by their law. And yet this was the first census taken by the Roman government of the Jewish people. 
Quirinius had captured this power and authority more than any governor of his time. His leadership of the, of the Syrian province was unprecedented. So we have three famous leaders of unprecedented power introduced in this story. We have King Herod, we have Caesar Augustus, we have Quirinius. The next two characters in the story, I would say, are unprecedented. They are common. They are average. They are normal. They are people from Nazareth in Galilee. They are poor young laborers who have been ordered to go to the husband's hometown, the town that he comes from, the village of Bethlehem. So Joseph and Mary were not, they were not unprecedented. They, they, they were this normal, average couple, uh, much like you and I would consider ourselves normal and average. And I often wonder, why did Joseph comply with this order? I mean, it was against their law to be taken role of in a census, Yet when the order comes out, the edict happens, um, he goes with Mary. He takes, she's probably in her ninth month at this point, um, and it's a very difficult road to travel. would take several days, and um, through some mountain passes, it, it, it's a challenging, challenging travel. And so they're on the road, and I often wonder how and why they would do that, especially when she was pregnant. Did they feel powerless? Were they afraid of Quirinius and his edict? Were they afraid of Caesar Augustus, of Herod? I mean, it would lead to new taxes, yet they didn't rebel against it. They complied. And while in Bethlehem, the time came for her baby to be born. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son in a manger. There was no lodging available for this family. They were in Bethlehem because Joseph was a descendant of King David. But there was no royal palace for Jesus to be born in. There was not even an extra room. There was a manger in the area that they kept the livestock. And the first visitors to the newborn king were not kings and princes and princesses. They were not emperors. They were not governors. They were not priests. They were not scholars. The first visitors to the Christ child were shepherds. And the shepherds, they were at the bottom rung of the Palestinian social ladder. They were also at the bottom rung of the Roman social ladder. As a matter of fact, the Romans held slaves in higher esteem than they did shepherds. Mary and Joseph were not unprecedented. They were average. But the birth of their son was unprecedented. This child is the savior it says, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, doesn't give us one. He gives us three descriptions. 
this child is the Savior. Yes, the Messiah, the Lord. He's been born in Bethlehem. Earlier when they, visited, when they were visited by the angel, Mary had been told, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus and he will be very great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. And his kingdom, his kingdom will never end. All of this wrapped up, all of this swaddled in an infant child. The Son of the Most High God swaddled. The ancestor, David's son, swaddled. The King of Israel, a king that will reign in eternity, swaddled and wrapped. This birth is unprecedented because of how God uses it. God uses the birth of this Christ child to come to us, to you and me. That's why we say the word for God, Emmanuel. It means God with us. God is not apart from us. God is not separate from us. God has come to be with us, with you. Yet, we greeted him. He was given to us to, to love, to, be, to receive him, to honor him. Yet, we greeted him with an aberration. We greeted him with, he's a comic king, a tragic king. He was so despised. He was so forlorn that he ended up crucified. And from that cross, he began his reign in power and in glory by suffering and dying for you. After this sermon, you're going to see a dance performed by Mia Person. Mia is studying at Gonzaga University. And uh, she and her production manager, her sister Rebecca, um, did the video of the dance here inside the sanctuary earlier this week. And one of the things that I was so impressed with, I mean, this dance moves me to tears. And what, what moved me so much in the beginning and the end is how it begins and how it ends. And that is the camera looks up at the ceiling of the sanctuary and you see the cross. But the cross here is different. Most churches have flying buttresses with the supports going upwards. The architect who designed this space did so intentionally, bringing the presence of God down to us. The supports, the steel beams that support this structure actually flow downward instead of upward because he wanted to visualize architecturally that God has come for you in this Christ child 
God has come for you. And isn't that what Christmas is really all about? That God would come down to us as his son? Now that is an unprecedented birth. Jesus Christ being born for you.